You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Hello. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the partners here, and I'll be reading from Romans 3, verses 27 through 21. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. Really glad that you're here with us. Really excited to be together here. It feels like December, finally. I'm grateful for that. Um, Before we get started, I want to honor a person who is stepping into a leadership role with us. She's been doing it for a little while. I just don't think I see her in here. Jamie, there you are. You're hiding. Okay. She told me she might hide from me. Actually, instead of inviting you up here, I'm just going to have you stand. And then if if people around you just want to turn around and as I pray, just put your hands over her. Um, Jamie and also Sarah Griffin, who's not here with us tonight, for the last, I mean, Jamie probably six, seven, eight, nine months at this point, has been um, working, leading Mercy View Kids, and we're so grateful for her. When we think about kids' ministry here at Mercy View, we want to think about that in a context where we are raising up disciples. Like, when does that start? Does it start when you're 18? No, it starts when you're little bitty. And you start hearing the great works of God and his love and being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. When does that start? It starts early. So we take that seriously, and we're so grateful for Jamie and her, her leadership and stepping into this arena. So I'm going to pray for her, and then if, as you just see her around and also Sarah, thank them for stepping in and discipling, leading our discipling efforts for our kids here. So I'm going to pray for you, Jamie, before we get started. Father, um, thank you for Jamie. Um, God, I, I'm so grateful for her and for her desire and her hard work and her vision and leadership for Mercy of Your Kids. Lord, you know, some of us here know um, uh, how much change has happened in our church in the last two years, Mercy of Your Kids. And so, God, I'm so thankful for faithful people who step in and lead and serve and do the work of discipling our kiddos. And so, God, thank you um, for Jamie. God, I pray that you would bless her and their efforts, uh, that you would give her strength and joy and honor her, Lord, as she serves our kids. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. About three years ago, um, we decided for my oldest son, Benaiah, who is now six, was three, to start trying some, like, organized recreational activities. So we started with soccer. Soccer over at Soccer City in Broken Arrow. People familiar with that. So we decided like, hey, that might be a good step to like just kind of get into something organized. We're kind of feral and so organization helps sometimes. Um, 
If you've ever watched a group of three and four-year-olds do anything, then you know it's not organized. It's far from that. It's actually kind of a mess, but the mess is wonderful. It's, it's, it's great. And so Benaiah certainly contributed to that mess. For whatever reason, he had it in his mind that he was the goalie. Now, we had, had maybe had one conversation about soccer before going, and maybe he picked up what a goalie was. Now, the irony here is that, like, for three- and four-year-olds, when they're introducing them to the game, there is no goalie. But he had it in his mind, Dad, I am the goalie. So when they were practicing, he would either be off by the goal, you know, the kids are you know, dribbling and, and kicking the ball down the field, doing, like, cone drills and stuff. He's by the goal, or he's diving on the ball, picking it up, and running with it. It's just, it's just absolutely the best. And so after a while, we're like, dude, what, what are you doing? He's like, Dad, I'm the goalie. I said, no, son, there is no goalie. And even if you were, you have to be in the goal to use your hands. And he looked at me with this, like, suspicious look, which I'm very familiar with now. No, I am the goalie. And he ran away. <laughs> That's the last time we did soccer. Oh my goodness, what's the point? What's the point as we turn to the text? Benaiah, in his little mind as he was playing soccer or attempting to play soccer, hyper-focused on a very specific context and then applied that context to the whole game, which doesn't work. Like if, you, if you're familiar at all with soccer, do you know anything about soccer? Like you can't use your hands. But what he did was take this specific context, like this really narrow facet of the game, and applied it to the whole thing. And if, you know, if he wanted to keep playing, he'd have to learn, like, hey, you can't, you can't do that. In a similar way, in the text in Romans tonight, Paul goes in on defining a couple of important relationships. First, justification and faith... And then also the role of faith and works in the Christian life in general. Do you see? There's a specific context and a broad context. And in order to understand what Paul wants us to see in the text, we've got to be able to understand both of these contexts. In other words, we cannot carry specific rules in specific contexts over into broad contexts and think it's going to work. Because it doesn't work. So to do that, I want to suggest to you that we have to, we have to be discipled by Paul in the word here, opposed to one of the ways that our culture teaches us, uh, and that is to think in simple dichotomies. It's either this or it's that. It's A or it's B. It's faith or it's works. Now, in order to get what Paul's wanting us to see, we've got to get rid of that and instead adopt the framework that he gives us, which we'll talk about as we go. So, uh, before we do that, let me, give you, let me give you a little roadmap of where we're going. I want you to see one overarching theme from the text tonight, and that theme is refining the relationship between faith and works. Refining the relationship between faith and works. And then, and then two sub-points for our time. First, faith and justification, and then second, faith and works in the Christian life. But before we do that, let me pray. Father, 
Thank you, God, for your word in which you show us the way to life. Thank you, God, that you have spoken to us in a way that we can understand. In other words, you don't hide from us, God. You make yourself known. Thank you, Father, that you have broken down the boundaries and you have come into our world through your Son and in your Spirit to, to form us and to, and to make a family and to draw us near. Thank you, God, that you are at work in our midst. Whether we understand what you're doing, see what you're doing or not, you are working. So God, into that mystery, give us eyes to see and give us faith to trust you when we don't understand. God, as we turn to your word, open our eyes that we would find wonders in it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First, faith and justification. Look with me at verse 28 in Romans 3. For we hold that no one, that, excuse me, that one is justified by faith apart from works the law. Or is God the God of the Jew only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul is bringing a theme of impartiality that we've seen in Romans 1 to 3 to full circle here. Remember that in the first few chapters of Romans, this context, he's making the case that all people, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, are guilty of sin. That no one is accepted by God based on what they do. No one. In other words, the standard that God gives us is so high, it's so out of reach, that no one can reach it. That is the point of Romans 1 to 3. And it's in that context that makes the turn here at the end of chapter 3 so significant. It's so significant. The fact that God is, in verse 326, chapter 3, verse 26, he tells us, the fact that he is the just and the justifier speaks volumes about the turn we're experiencing, but also the loving commitment that God has for his people, for you. Now, this, again, the context in Romans 1 to 3 rightly contextualizes the turn because it highlights the complete inability of people to, to reach the standard that God has given us, the standard that he's presented. Now, if you've been with us in our, our series in Romans, perhaps you've felt that as we've moved through these introductory chapters. It is heavy to say the least. It is not light reading. It's certainly not light like listening and, and, and taking in. It's, it's incredibly significant. But this context also opens the door God, for God to invite you to see how good he really is. What do I mean? One of the things that happened at the fall is that our, that our minds are darkened to God. Not only do we not seek God, like Paul tells us earlier in Romans 3, but also our, our pictures of God, our visions of God are distorted. So one of our significant problems as believers is wondering, is God really as good as he says he is? Really? Like, have you seen my life? Have you seen what's happening? I don't, sometimes I don't believe that God is as good as he says he is. Romans 1 to 3 and the turn here at the end of chapter 3, God is inviting you to see how good he really is. 
He's inviting you to see how good he is, that he is committed to you, not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of faith. Don't miss what God is doing. Don't miss. Like he, the context, again, he knows, he knows you can't save yourself. You can't justify yourself. But through faith, he can justify you and save you. That's what it means in 326 when he says God is the just and the justifier, that he sets the perfect standard and then demonstrates his goodness to you by giving you the standard. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. This is for everyone. Faith in Christ is the only way a person can be justified or made right before God. Paul says that in verse 328, if you need to look back and say that again. Justification by faith, Brad mentioned it last week, is one of the central doctrines in the Christian faith. It's hard to overstate how important justification by faith is. It matters. It matters a lot. The truth is that as we think about life as a Christian, the Christian life, many believers believe justification by faith. Believe it. Believe it. But then struggle to live like it's true. In other words, it stays in your head. It doesn't make it to your heart or your hands to affect the way you live your life. It stays almost like an intellectual exercise. It doesn't affect how you live. So what might this disjunction, this this brokenness, like I believe it here, but it doesn't affect my life. We've got to think deeply and consider what does that look like? How might I see that evidencing itself in my life application? What might it look like to believe in justification by faith, but then live like I'm justified through works? A couple of ideas here. First, comparison. Comparison. Now, comparison in many, 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 many cases stems from insecurity, Insecurity. Now, you may feel insecure about your weakness, about your sin, about your struggle, about yourself, and instead of falling back on the, the, the mercy of God and justification by faith, you might seek to justify yourself by comparing yourself to somebody else. Well, at least I'm not blank. At least I don't do that, these, these kind of things. Why do we do that? All kinds of reasons. One of them is because we, 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 we act like... Justification is through works. One of the things that that does, it creates self-righteousness and disunity, and it might be marked by things like sarcasm or cynicism or an overly critical spirit toward other people. Are Are those things, sarcasm, cynicism, and a critical spirit, are they just on the surface, unattached to something deeper going on? No, they are not. Very often they are not. So what's down there? One of the roots that's down there feeding those actions is living like I've got to justify myself through my works. So what do we do? What do we do, we do about that? How, do we, how, do I, how am I to rightly apply justification by faith in my life? Think about it like this as a, a practical thought experiment. You know the impulse of comparison. Like you know, I, I know you know 
when that thing rises up inside of you, coming from a place of insecurity, maybe being sarcastic, maybe being cynical, maybe being overly critical, what do you do when that happens? What do you do? You just do it like it's like it's like it's like you have to. Oh, here we go again. Or do you, in Christ, with eyes to see and a heart that believes, have the power to say no to that and instead? reflect on the fact that you are secure and justified in Christ. This is super practical stuff. This is not like, you know, quantum physics or anything. Like, I have the, you have the power in Christ. He gives you the agency that when that impulse rises up inside of you, you can say no to it. You can remove it, the insecurity, the, the, the critical spirit, the, the sarcasm, the cynicism, say no to it, remove it, and replace it with what? Well, the good news of justification by faith, that God has justified you apart from anything that you can do. Which means, instead of insecurity, you're secure. You're secure. Who cares what this person is like compared to me? Because in Christ, through faith, Justification, it's, it's one of its outworkings is that I am secure in him. You are secure in him through faith. A second, a second um, evidence of acting like I'm justified by works. Hiding. Hiding. Now, sometimes people hide because deep down, deep down, you might think, man, if people really knew me, like, What's really in my heart, what's really there, they, they, they would not love and accept me. And sometimes that thought takes such like a strong position, we even convince ourselves that like if God knew who I really was, like deep down, there's no way he would love and accept me. Listen, this is an old and deep problem. In fact, I would suggest to you that in the garden, Adam and Eve's newfound shame after the fall compelled them to hide from God. Like, the thought, like, he is not going to accept us anymore. He's not going to love us. We better go hide. That sound familiar to you? The fact, like, you walk in your life and you struggle with sin and you choose idolatry, and then afterward you wonder, like, oh, my gosh, is God still going to love me? Is he still going to accept me? I better go hide for a couple days and then I'll come out and feel better about myself and approach God. Here again, the good news of justification by faith tells us it comes rushing in like a, like a raging torrent. Like, no, 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 God is this good that he knows everything, good, bad, ugly. He's alongside you the entire way. He knew where Adam and Eve were. He knows where you are. You don't have to hide his heart for you in justification by faith is toward you. Toward you. You don't have to hide. It's not like you could hide from him anyway. But the truth is that in Christ, you don't have to. You don't have to. Because again, in these moments where we sin and feel the shame and, 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 and the, the option or the, the, the impulse to pull further away from God and go hide somewhere or beat myself up, like 
Those are these moments where justification by faith comes riding in and is inviting you to trust the goodness of God. Trust me. It's almost like God dares you to trust him in the midst of those struggles. Like, do you actually believe that I'm this good? And justification by faith says, yes. It answers the question, yes. That you're saved and you're justified, your position with him is secure, not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done. So both of these examples, living like we're justified through our works, are characterized by insecurity. You're, you're insecure, so you compare. You're insecure, so you hide. In addition to comparison and hiding, they also increase things like anxiety. I'm always looking over my shoulder. They increase, they increase things like depression and despair, where they can actually drive you into the ground. The idea of being justified by works introduces a question into the Christian life that you can never answer. It's like a question that, that, that like, it's like a weight that gets put on your back that you can never get rid of. The question is something like, have I done enough? Are my works good enough? And who's going to answer that question? You can't. So it introduces anxiety. It introduces depression. It introduces despair. This is not the picture of what Jesus gives you in for, for, gives for your life as a believer. In John 10.10, 10, when Jesus says, I have come to give them life and life abundant. What does abundant life look like? Is it walking around with a giant thing on your back, a burden like that? Because I'm trying to justify myself through works or living like I am? No, it's certainly not that. It's certainly not that. Abundant life in Christ actually gets rid of that thing. And you can walk in, in the freedom and security that he has provided for you. Justification frees you practically. So when you look at your life, like you can take a deep breath. You can take a deep breath and, and fall back on the goodness of God. It frees you to have the courage to look into the mirror, to like gaze deep into the mirror and see who you really are. Good, bad, ugly and understand that none of that has anything to do with your righteousness before God. It secures you to have courage to take great um, 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 pains to looking at your life and being serious about killing your sin or moving against it, growing in Christ. Justification provides the ground for sanctification, in other words. Again, it's hard to overstate how important justification by faith is in the Christian life. Like, it's central. Central. But it's not the only doctrine, it's not the only context that matters or that influences the Christian life. It's specific. It's not broad. So this leads me to the second point I want you to see this evening. Faith and works in the Christian life. Faith and works in the Christian life. Look with me down at Romans 3, 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. But sometimes suggested or implied that in Paul's writing, the law is bad. That's a, that's a very simple way of thinking about it. But it's implied that, that Paul is saying, that forget about the law, throw it off, don't mess with it anymore. 
Now, those statements are so simple that they're not true. They're not true, and they're, they're actually misleading. Typically, one of the downstream effects of thinking the law is bad is that, is that obedience to God, obedience to his law, or doing good works is somehow legalism. You follow that? Like, if the law is bad, and so then following the law, obeying Jesus, doing good works must be bad too. In other words, since the law is bad, somehow obeying it makes me a Pharisee. Now, is there a way to pursue the law that makes you a Pharisee? Sure. But is that what Paul's talking about? No. Is that the testimony of the text in general, that the law is bad and therefore you don't have to do any of it? No, not even close. This view is wrong. It's actually dangerous because it conflates obedience to God, which is required in the Christian life, and legalism, which real legalism is false teaching. It conflates these ideas and creates all kinds of confusion. All kinds of confusion. I want to suggest to you one of the, one of the problems that... that, that um, that we're running into in this view is looking at what Paul says about justification by faith in this specific context and applying it to the whole or broad context of the Christian life. Does that make sense? We don't want to do that. Paul's not doing away with the law. He's not saying obedience is bad or even neutral or that good works, I don't worry about that. That's not what he said. He said in Romans 3.21, or 31 rather, that faith upholds the law. Which sounds really similar, using different words, to what he says in Titus, where he says, the people of God were zealous for good works. Is that a bad thing? No. No. Now to press that point further, does Paul mean that, that being zealous for good works contribute to justification? Or that they earn favor with God? Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. How do we know? Because of what he said in Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. Rather, he means that good works, obeying the law, are evidence they show in a person's life, they, they demonstrate faith. They demonstrate faith. Friends, Paul is not abolishing the law. Just like Jesus didn't abolish the law. This means that good works, obeying the law, following Christ, are all integral parts of what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means, it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not legalism. It's, 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 it's obedience. Now, it, it, it would be a type of legalism if Paul was saying good works or obeying the law were applied to justification. But that's not what Paul said. Not what he says in the text. Not what he says in any other text. So we can't go there. So we have to think about refining, refining the relationship between faith and works. We've got to think differently about that, perhaps. Romans 3.31 teaches us that we can't force their relationship into a dichotomy. We just can't do it. It doesn't work. It breaks what he's saying. Like if you use that framework, it's faith or works, you're not going to be able to follow what Paul's saying. You've got to get rid of it. Instead of a dichotomy, the relationship between faith and works is sequential. 
One follows the other. One follows the other. Faith follows, rather it's the other way, my bad. Works follow faith. It's not a dichotomy. They're sequentially related. One follows the other, and for clarity, faith precedes works. Back to uh, Benaiah playing soccer. What did he do? He over-applied a specific rule for a specific context into a broader context. And he messed up the game. You can't do it. It doesn't work. You just can't play soccer if you're just going to jump on the ball with your hands. Paul is saying that faith alone is involved in justification. He is not saying that faith alone is involved in the Christian life. Instead, in the wider context of the Christian life, faith and works coexist. They coexist. In fact, works demonstrate the presence of faith. When you think about the epistle um, that James writes, specifically in James 2, 14 to 26, when like if you look at that in your Bible, it'll say something like faith and works is dead as a synopsis of that section. What does he mean? Are you talking about justification? Faith without works is dead? Or is he giving examples, even in that text, of what the Christian life looks like? That faith and works live together. It's, it's not one or the other. It's both in the context of the Christian life. That's the point that James has for us. When he says faith without works is dead, he's not talking about justification. He's not talking about how a person is right with God. He's not talking about how the love of God rescues a person. He's not talking about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because you, you know, did some good works. No, he's not talking about any of that. No, he's talking about the presence of works, good works, in the Christian life being evidence that God has saved a person or justified a person through what? Faith. Faith. Now, we have a really hard time holding that context, keeping it square. It moves, and it, it's hard, it can, can be difficult for certain people, many of us, to hold on to. It's really easy to slip into thinking good works, the law, spiritual disciplines, or even simple effort in my Christian life is somehow legalism. And, and, and if we're thinking what Paul's saying here, those things are not inherently legalism. Now, they can be, but they're not inherently Legalism. Instead, all of these things are examples of how sanctification, the process by which God conforms you to the image of his son, actually work. That's how it actually works. Think about it like this. God justifies a person through faith alone. And then God works to start sanctifying a person in, in their life. How does he do that? Well, Paul says that he, he, he does that through upholding the law in faith. That's what Romans 3.31 says. So in a sense, what we're doing in your Christian life, God is sanctifying you, and you are participating in your sanctification. Through what? Faith and good works. And good works. Is sanctification the same thing as justification? No. No. Not at all. They're, 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 they're different. They're, they're separate. 
This is how, this is how God works to, to grow his people, to invite you to participate in sanctification, to grow or mature in, in Christ, to be formed and discipled by him. You need faith and works. Faith and works. I understand that, like, with saying something like that, like some antenna go up, and like, oh, what's he talking about? Faith and works. But again, we're not talking about the specific context of how a person is saved or, or how a person is justified. No. We're talking about what the Bible says about living the Christian life. And in the Christian life, you need faith that demonstrates itself, that works. That's what James says. You need faith that leads you to love Jesus. Like you can't just like stir that up, especially in the midst of a culture that's so distracting. If my faith doesn't help me love Christ more, you know what? I'm going to be pulled away by anything else in the culture that's loud. Our culture's loud. So I need faith that works, that helps me love Jesus more, that helps me put away my sin, that helps me love and prioritize the church, that helps me resist the power of secular culture, that helps me read the Bible, that helps me pray, that helps me worship. Like, how do I do all of those things? Through faith. Do I really have to do them to grow? Yes. Yeah. I can't just not participate in what God has declared and prescribed for me as a Christian and think that I'm going to grow. That's not how it works. Rather, he has saved you through faith and he grows you into the image of Christ through faith that results in good works, that allows you to put yourself to death, which is like a daily, hourly thing. You think you could do that apart from faith? No. Does it also take work? Absolutely it does. Like, I know that my sin is difficult for me to overcome. So what do I need? I need faith and I need works that help me to actually put it to death. I can't just think like, well, I need to have faith and then that faith do nothing for me in the, in the specific context of putting away my sin. It's just not how it works. Not really. We need both in this context. Faith that leads to good works. And friends, that's not legalism. It's not. It's the picture that Paul gives us here. It's faith upholding the law. Faith upholding the law. Seminary professor Richard Loveless in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, suggests that the Christian, um, for the Christian to experience continual renewal, which sounds like a thing I need, continual renewal, or, or growth in Christ, to grow, to mature, one must understand the relationship between justification and sanctification. There's some other things that he points out, but these two, justification and sanctification. He means that when you know you're justified by faith, you can freely pursue sanctification in your life. Knowing that your performance in sanctification doesn't affect your justification. Think about it like this. Have you seen the movie Free Solo? It's, um, Jerry has, wonderful. <laughs> Free Solo is a film that, that follows the story of a guy named Alex Honnold, who's a professional rock climber. And in the film, he climbs um, a, a mountain, a cliff, in Yosemite National Park called um, El Capitan. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you haven't seen an image of that, Google it. 
It is, and then think about this guy climbed that thing without a rope. It's nuts. This is 3,000 feet straight up in the air out of the valley there in Yosemite. He's pretty famous now um, for free solo climbing, which I just gave it away if you don't know what that is. It's rock climbing without the, without the rope, without the harness. You just go. A lot of chalk on your hands, something loose up here, and you just go. And you just go. It's, 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 I, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not prone to like anxiety, especially like in film or whatever, but like my hands were sweaty the whole time. I was just like, oh my goodness gracious. Okay, I'm not going to give it away. What's the point? What's the point? If the Christian life is like a climb, which I mean, Paul says the Christian life is like a race or it's like a fight. So it seems to me that climb is a, is a metaphor that works reasonably well. Justification is like the rope in the harness. What does it do? It secures you for the climb. Now, the climb itself, in this analogy, is the process of sanctification. You would not want to climb El Capitan without a rope. Frankly, like, no one here would make it. But as daunting as that is, following Jesus without justification by faith is more daunting. You're not going to make it. So what God has done is actually provide you with the security and the means by which to do what? Climb. Grow. Be changed. Look more like Jesus. Not on your own merits. You don't add anything to that rope or that harness. Rather, it secures you for the climb. It secures you for the climb. And so, again, I want to I point this out to you. What must God be like? What must God be like to provide you with the means by which to climb? It means he's good, okay? It means that he's good. It means that you can trust him. It means that he's provided for you everything you need to grow in Christ, to be his disciple, to follow him into an increasingly hostile world. How are you going to climb? With the harness with justification by faith that secures me as I go out and live a distinctively Christian life, growing in grace, looking more like Jesus, putting my sin behind me and to death, walking in maturity. Listen, there's a lot of folks in our church who are like me, like mid-30s and maybe under. Some of you, some of you are you know, further right than that on the bell curve. How are you going to grow? How are we going to grow? Listen, there's urgency. I don't know if you hear that in my voice or like when we've been talking about where we are as a church and where we need to go and all these things and the culture changing and spinning. There's urgency. How are we going to grow? We need to. I need to look more like Jesus than I do. What are you? How are we going to do that? God graciously in his goodness has provided you the means, justification by faith, to climb. And also, in his good providence for you, he's put you in a, in a family where it's not like you're supposed to climb by yourself. Just go. No, no one ever said that. Not in the history of the Christian church. Like, it's a modern thing to think, you know what, I'm going to get right with God, and then I'm going to do that by myself. No, you're not. That's not how it works. It's never how it's worked. The church is an integral piece of how God has chosen to rescue and secure his people. So again, how are we going to grow? How are we going to continue to walk out? How are we going to continue to climb? Well, the answer, foundationally, is through justification by faith that leads us to good works. 
that leads us to growing in godliness, that leads us to put away our sin and to forsake the world, to adopt a kingdom mindset. That's what Jesus is talking about. You, I know you've read the Sermon on the Mount, or at least the Beatitudes. Do any of those Beatitudes make sense apart from the kingdom of God? Like, who said, the meek shall inherit the earth? Like, if you said that in the culture, they would probably say, that's, that's silly. Rather, the strong inherit the earth through their conquering. No, no, but Jesus is saying, you've got to get rid of the world, and you've got to adopt the kingdom mindset. Well, how do you do that? Nation by faith. That leads to life and godliness that leads to growth, that leads to sanctification. And in the context of the local church, that's a community project. We do that together. So we have to praise God for justification by faith. Like it's, It is central to the entire story. Like you don't have the Christian story. You don't have the story of the gospel without justification by faith. And also, we have to praise God for the results of justification by faith. That they lead to good works. They lead to growth. They lead to sanctification. They lead to Christian maturity. God presiding over the whole thing, inviting us in to, to, to see his goodness on display. To dare you to trust him. Remember back that thing that happened at the fall that makes me wonder, is God really this good? He is. Is this good? And in, in this passage in Romans 3, you see justification by faith. You see the results of that in the Christian life, that I'm secured, and that gives me the opportunity to live out that faith in a way that, that is distinctively Christian. Praise God for that as he, as he presides over that. Okay, I want to do this as we close. Um, <clears throat> I want to read um, Isaiah 53. Now, it's Advent, Advent time, so it makes sense, I guess. <laughs> but then also, as I read Isaiah 53, I want you to meditate on a couple of things. First, first consider Isaiah 53 a letter, a letter to you, a letter to the people of God, in which God demonstrates his goodness to you through the person and work of his son. Ask him as you meditate that he would give you clear eyes to see the servant in the text and that that would change you and that your heart would be stirred anew and that your affections for him would, would be hot and that they would actually light on fire and that would change you we need that. Back to loveless, continual renewal. We need that all the time in our lives. Think about those things as I read this text. And then move on. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before, before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried away our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon, excuse me, upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God to crush him, for he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, so the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made great intercession for the transgressors. Did you notice in verse 11 that he would make many to be counted righteous? In Christ, you are counted righteous. Righteous. 